0: hello thanks for listening to the total knee tips and pearls podcast this is adam rose and your host i'm a fellowship trained orthopedic surgeon who specializes in joint replacement in these episodes i'm going to share with you a lot of my tips and tricks and review classic articles and current implant designs thanks for tuning in and on with the show Hello and welcome back. This is Adam Rosen and you're listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. But again, in these past few episodes, we've been talking more about the consults or diagnoses for the non-orthopedic doctor. Um, And today I'm going to kind of wrap that up with um, a few kind of um, top consults in the hospital, in the ER, in the urgent care, and just kind of review, you know, some basic concepts and things that, you know, are just helpful to expedite the appropriate care of the patient. Um, But for importance and severity's sake, I'm gonna start with the most severe and the biggest issue Um, thing that we need to worry about is compartment syndrome. Um, So this is uh, something that occasionally, you know, I'll get consults when patients are in the ICU, um, in the hospital. More often than not, these are, you know, consultations for people that are actually in the urgent care or in the ER. And I just want to really make it important. um, And again, it's this catch-22 because we don't want to say, you know, Only in the worst of worst cases, um, consider it and don't call us for, you know, every lump and bump and painful limb. Um, But therein lies the risk that somebody could be sent home that truly has it. But you also have to understand that if they do have it or you think they have it, this is not an outpatient workup. And the reason I bring this up is there was a patient recently where, you know, they were seen over the weekend and sent home. And, you know, in the documentation and the electronic medical record note to me was, you know, saw a patient, thought he may have uh, developing compartment syndrome, um, recommended that you follow up with you on Monday. And luckily for the patient, they did not have compartment syndrome. Um, we did call them and have him come in first thing Monday morning and he just came strolling in the door like nothing happened. Um, but again, that would have potentially cost the patient his leg and, you know, definitely would have led to you know, a malpractice lawsuit and the doctor would have lost if he truly did have compartment syndrome and he sent him home. So, you know, the things that most people are aware of, the P's, um, you know, typically the five P's that people are taught, um, pain, but specifically pain out of proportion, um, pallor of the limb, just decreased color, um, sometimes even poikilothermia, um, which some people refer to as six Ps or seven Ps, depending on which, which place you're reading, um, decreased temperature, paresthesias, tingling numbness in the leg um, or limb, pulselessness or just decreased or fainter pulses paralysis which is a bad late sign you know and, and pain with passive stretch which sometimes people you know the passive stretch they list as a, a separate sort of issue but you know just understand that if you see someone whose pain is way out of proportion to their injury maybe they do or do not have a fracture um, because if there's any you know injury and this is something I'll talk about over and over again is if you suspect an injury to the body part get an x-ray You know, just like if you suspect somebody's having a heart attack, you don't call cardiology without an EKG. And go, they they may or may not be having, you know, an MI, but um, can you come down and just look at them? You you get the EKG first. And, you know, orthopedics, um, that kind of analogous thing that we need a lot of times is the x-ray. Even if the trauma is mild, you know, you don't know if they had some sort of bony lesion from a tumor that they broke through with very minimal trauma um, or even no trauma. So the x-ray is really, really helpful. But that pain is out of proportion. And then the other thing, that that limb is firm. You know, it's very, there's a lot of pressure there. Um, and it's not just, you know, tender to the touch. I mean, these are people that almost jump when you touch them. It is important um, to understand that in the acute setting, you know, this, again, is a call. There are people that can get, you know, chronic or what we call um, exercise-induced compartment syndrome. This is a much less severe sort of presentation, usually exacerbated by exercise relieved with rest, and that's something separate. But, you know, when we come down and evaluate these, you'll hear about people measuring compartment pressures, and although that can be done and is still done, sometimes in questionable circumstances, more often than not, It's going to be a clinical judgment call because, you know, if we wait and delay, we could kill the muscle and that could lead to significant disability of the limb. Um, So we're going to make that decision. The other important thing from the medical aspect, though, is, you know, are they on a blood thinner? You know, and is this patient on warfarin? Is their INR7? But even if they're not on warfarin or some other, you know, anticoagulant, you know, what are they on? you know, is there a way to reverse the drug that they're on, you know, and that may be playing a factor if they have an evolving hematoma, which can lead to a compartment syndrome. So definitely just be aware. And this is one of those things that this is not the patient um, that you kind of let sit and kind of check on. This is when you got to check, evaluate, you know, assess. Because if it's not, you know, work up the other diagnoses um, or differentials. But if it is, and you suspect it is, you know, get the appropriate studies, labs, imaging, uh, and then call ortho and let them make that final decision. Um, next things, but definitely on a much less severe um, thing, which is a very common issue, uh, is, is cellulitis is one aspect. There's a little spin-off that I'll talk about briefly though, and this is, you know, dog bites, which are, you know, very, very common phone call that we get. Unfortunately, you know, we get these phone calls late where the patient's been, you know, in and out of the ER a couple times. And just because it was a little pinhole, they didn't really think it was that big of a deal. And more often than not, unfortunately, I see people placed on the wrong antibiotics, you know, so we want to make sure that we're covering the appropriate, um, bacteria, flora from the dog, you know, best drug out there is going to be orally augmented. So even if you're a primary care doctor and, you know, patient presents to your office, you know, don't put them on Keflex. You're not going to cover enough. And even the most innocuous looking hole um, can be a deadly problem if it's gotten into the tendon and then it's gotten into the joint and it's gotten deep and now it festers. And that's more often where we get called three, five, seven days later. And now the patient has a deep abscess that requires surgical debridement where sometimes a simple irrigation debridement initiating the appropriate antibiotics um, usually can treat these you know quite well um but you want to make sure that you know you're assessing these and and treating them aggressively and early because the the rare form and the thing that you know I think we most commonly get phone calls for where there's really not much we can do is just basic cellulitis you know whether or not this is cellulitis from you know a cut a scrape um whether or not they had cellulitis because they have venous stasis changes, but they had some sort of injury to the skin, they developed cellulitis, and it's, you know, consult ortho. There's not much that we can do. You know, so the reality is that if someone has cellulitis, it's a medical treatment. You know, it's treating the wound locally, um, if it's superficial, and if there's not a wound, and they just develop cellulitis, it's antibiotic treatment. So when is it best to call orthopedics and what really helps us? Well, the thing that we can do surgically is, you know, do they have a fluid collection? Do they have an abscess? Is there something to surgically drain? And the way to really figure that out is to get some imaging. So, with an ultrasound, an ultrasound is going to help tell. You know, there's soft tissue swelling, no abscess, not much for us to do surgically, or an MRI. You know, soft tissue inflammation, no abscess, no compartment syndrome, no abscess, no dog bite. Nothing to do surgically. That's, that's a medical treatment, so IV antibiotics. However, if they do have some sort of abscess, you know, then the question is, is there something to be done to drain that? And also, more importantly, to determine the bug. So that's where I think ultrasound's very helpful because if you have a good radiology department and a good ultrasound team and doctors, you know, you can coordinate with them and say, hey, I'm sending this patient down, they have cellulitis, I think they have an abscess. If they do, can you drain it? Um, and leave a drain in, or at least drain it and get us a specimen. Um, so a lot of times they like to leave the drains in, at least at our institution, if we're sending them down for that. But that's really helpful because you know now the patient's avoided a general anesthetic. You know They go down to IR, either ultrasound. They may choose to then transfer them over to CT, depending on the radiologist's preference. And then if they do find a fluid collection, they can drop a drain in it. They can get a sample. They can send it to the lab. You can get bacterial sensitivities. And the patient has been treated And that may be the most quick, efficient, effective, you know, less invasive than going to the operating room with an anesthetic, you know, an open incision, um, which definitely in a high-risk patient, you know, may be an issue with wound healing versus a little pinhole. So definitely, you know, consider cellulitis consults to ortho. You know, ask yourself the question, is there something that a surgeon can do surgically? You know, can I prove that there is a abscess with some sort of imaging, you know, more commonly like um, an ultrasound, um, MRI, CT, sort of another option, but again, a lot of radiation. And you may do better with one of the other modalities first. And then, you know, whether or not is the patient even safe for surgery, maybe you have a good radiology department. Is there an option to go to radiology first and see if we can kind of treat that? Um, We'll be back after a quick break. Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind-the-scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Drs. Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. we've got something for everyone. When we talk about fractures, um, this becomes sort of the third topic and, and I, for most of you, this is going to sound silly, but um, the reality is we need an x-ray so you know you get phone calls from from the ER from the floor. Um, and, and I'll kind of lump into that, you know, also fractures and hip hip shoulder dislocations. You know, calling us and saying, hey, you know, I think this patient's got a fracture. Okay, um, what's the X ray show? Oh, I didn't get an X ray yet. Or I think this patient may be dislocated. Okay, um, what's the X ray show? Is it out or in? Oh, I didn't get an X ray yet. 99% of the time, that phone call doesn't help us. Um, it's great if maybe there's a shift change and you think maybe docs are leaving. And yeah, you know, it's great if I'm walking out the door and someone calls me and I might be like, okay, you know, let me come up there and let's get the x-ray done before I plan on leaving, getting a phone call in 20 minutes, to turn around and come back. Um, that is the one time where I go, oh, okay, it's helpful because um, I was just about to walk out the door. But 99% of the other time, you know, if someone comes in, get an image, you know, don't just tell me that the leg looks bad or the wrist looks bad. Okay, it could be swelling, could be hematoma, probably fracture, but what I'm gonna do for the patient, how I'm gonna treat them really depends on the x-ray, especially in a shoulder um, or a hip. Like if they do have a fracture and a dislocation, you know, that may completely change the way that we manage these things. So some dislocations can be straight dislocations and you can reduce them. But some dislocations may be associated with a fracture where you could actually do more harm So you wanna make sure that you have the appropriate test. Again, I I lead this back to the analogy of you don't call cardiology and say, I think someone's having an MI because they walk in the door and you get the EKG. So someone walks in the door and you think they have a fracture, they think they have a dislocation. Again, I know this sounds silly to the majority of you listening, but you would be surprised how many orthopedic surgeons will tell you they get phone calls all the time for someone suspecting a fracture dislocation and no one has ordered an x-ray. So just get the x-ray, it really, really helps us. Okay, so let's go on. So next topic, um, infections and antibiotics. So this is um, a thing, and again, I I would strongly recommend you talk to your local orthopedist to make sure everyone's on the same page, but I would tell you that every orthopedic surgeon that I know um, feels the same way, that if you have somebody that comes in and you suspect that they have an infection and the patient is medically stable, do not give them antibiotics until we get a specimen. Because if you give them antibiotics, and now they have high dose IV antibiotics on board for a while, and the specimen does not grow anything, we do not know what we are treating, which then relinquishes the person to be on broad spectrum antibiotics for a longer period of time. Whereas if we know the exact bacteria, species, and with sensitivities can isolate, that species and its best drug we can then narrow it down to one drug for that patient if possible so when somebody comes in you know the things that we're looking for and thinking about you know cbc is helpful you know for multiple reasons but definitely if the white blood count uh, white white blood cell count is elevated that's helpful um, sometimes in you know, some of these you know abscesses joint infections we don't always see a huge rise in the white count early on a sed rate and a CRP are extremely helpful because, again, you know, white uh, white blood cell count, sed rate, CRP all normal. Uh, the suspicion for infection is quite low. In a joint, you know, always consider adding in um, a uric acid. You know, we're going to get crystals on the aspirate to really prove or disprove that the patient does or does not have gout. Because you know, a gout or a pseudo gout presentation in a joint can very significantly mimic an infection. Um, but obviously not the best treatment to then take that person to the operating room and wash them out. Um, And the other thing though, is, you know, checking for the, um, the area of concern, because, you know, if it's in a joint, not all ER doctors I've found are comfortable aspirating it. If it's an abscess on a hand or leg, you know, same sort of deal. I've had the, the phone calls of you know, well, I think they have an abscess, or I think they have a you know joint infection, but you know I didn't want to put a needle in it because I didn't want to cause an infection. They so, no, no no, if you think they have an infection, the best thing that you could do for that person is put a needle in it because one, if they do have an infection, you're initiating treatment, and two, if they do have an infection or don't have an infection, you're diagnosing it. Um, that's going to be up to the individual listening to this podcast, and then your comfort level. Um, I would strongly recommend that if you're in that environment where you are potentially going to be seeing people with these problems you're not comfortable, you know, talk to your local orthopedist and say, hey, give me, you know, some, some tips and pointers on how do I aspirate these safely and then what should I send? Because that's the, the most important thing which I wanted to get to is that, you know, more often than not, somebody does a great job by sticking a needle and gets a specimen but they don't send it off for the right stuff. And now I get a phone call 24 hours later and I gotta stick the person again because you know what we're looking for is the cell count. Um, the cell count is extremely helpful, whether or not this is a native virgin joint or a joint that has um, a joint replacement or just a routine abscesses. You know, that, that cell count is gonna tell us a lot about whether or not this is infected even before cultures come back. And then the cultures are really, really helpful to again, identify the bug. You know, typically if we're concerned, depending on the patient and the presentation, you know, aerobic and anaerobic cultures, fungus and AFB, you know, they're really, really helpful. The one thing that we're seeing more commonly in orthopedics um, now, more commonly in the shoulders, but in lots of joints too, is this P. acne's infection. Um, But those are difficult to grow in the first couple of days and most, you know, labs will culture out for three to five. You know, those you specifically have to write on to hold for 14 days on your anaerobic cultures. Um, And the other important thing, with all of these is adding in you know, crystals. Because again, if somebody presents with a red hot swollen joint, and they have gout or pseudo gout, the treatment is extremely different than it is if they have an infection. Um, so we always wanna kind of rule that in or rule that out. And then we can then make a decision. If you've identified a bug, and the patient is gonna go to the operating room, especially if the patient is septic, then it's a great time to initiate antibiotics. You know, But if we're suspecting infection, you know, we have an inadequate specimen, then we may want to decide on when we give those antibiotics in relation to the operating room um, to give us the best chance of success for identifying the organism. But, you know, just keep in mind that if you see somebody and you think they have an infected knee, shoulder, abscess, if they're stable, hold off on antibiotics, at least until you talk to the orthopedic surgeon and say, hey, you know, this is what I got. Do you want me to give them antibiotics now? They may say yes. Um, if the patient's septic, just give them the antibiotics, but it's great if you can get a specimen cleanly prior to the initiation of the antibiotics. Um, next things I want to talk about is, and this is more for the, um, sort of inpatient hospitalists. Um, but when we talk about hospitalists following our post-op surgical patients, things that are still commonly done, um, that tend to offer very little. Um, in the way of helping diagnose or treat patients, um, and also tend to utilize a lot of healthcare resources and dollars. So if you're not familiar with, you definitely should familiarize yourself with the chest guidelines. And you know, one of the things that came out in the last set of chest guidelines, again, is the idea of they recommend against routine ultrasounds for postoperative patients. Um, And I see this more commonly, I'll tell you, to be honest with you, patients come in with hip fractures and they seem to be like routinely ordering ultrasounds on every patient that comes in. Now, previously, this was a thing because patients, or hospitals rather, were always afraid of getting dinged for an in-hospital ultrasound positive for DVT and even nursing homes. So a lot of them would require ultrasounds prior to transfer because again, they didn't want to get dinged, they wanted to prove it happened in the hospital. Um, But it is important to understand that if somebody comes in with a new injury, there's no indication for routine ultrasound. So if you suspect that somebody has acute pain, swelling with risk factors, you know, then there's an indication for the ultrasound, but don't just get routine ultrasounds just because somebody has surgery or had an injury. That's kind of number one of these you know, common post-surgical sort of things. Um, number two, um, post-operative anemia and CAT scans looking for bleeding. You know, this is a common thing that we tend to still see, which is, you know, waste of time and, you know, exposes patients to a lot of radiation. So if somebody has lost a unit or two of blood after a routine orthopedic surgery, for the most part, major surgeries, you know, patients that are in the hospital, we're talking, you know, hip fractures, shoulder replacements, knee replacements, hip replacements, some big spine operations, a gram or two, more often than not, they're bleeding where we just did surgery. So if a knee replacement was done yesterday and they're swollen and they have a... You know, one gram, two gram drop in their hemoglobin. That is within normal limits. You get the CAT scan and then call us to say the CAT scan report came back from the radiologist and they saw a large hematoma in the knee. And again, I think for the majority of you listening, you're gonna go, yeah, yeah, no duh. But we get these phone calls all of the time. And my patients get whipped down to CT um and then you know get exposed to a lot of radiation for something that we already know the answer to. Yeah, they do have blood in their joint, because I took a saw and a drill to the end of their knee and they're gonna bleed, it's normal, and the one or two grams is normal, but are they hypotensive? Are they lightheaded, are they dizzy, are they symptomatic from the anemia? And if not, we don't have to go crazy. You know, it's different, obviously, in the spine world, somebody has a new onset neurologic deficit with anemia. That, that's a different story. We're looking for hematoma specifically pressing on some neural structure, but for the most part, pain, swelling, one or two gram normal postoperative anemia, there's no need to rush into the CAT scan on the operative limb Check with your orthopedic surgeon. 99% of the time, they're going to go, no, no indication. Don't get it. It's normal. It's expected. Um, next thing, um, postoperative white blood cell elevation. You know, one of the reasons that, you know, I stopped doing routine lab draws, CBCs and h hs was because of the advent of this new use of transexamic acid. You know, we stole this from the cardiothoracic surgeons and in our world and literature for knee and hip replacements, it's really been shown to statistically decrease the need for postoperative transfusions, which is great for patients for multiple reasons. But we found you know, our rates were around 20% transfusion rate prior to the initiation of TXA and now less than 1%. So we know that if someone has a you know, hemoglobin of over 11.5 and they're undergoing routine total joint replacement with TXA, the chance of needing a transfusion is extremely low. But Years ago, you know, I used to order CBCs on everybody. Why? Well, that's what we did. And they were on an and We were worried about platelets. We were worried about blood loss and anemia. And attached to that was the white blood cell count, um, which wasn't very necessary. When we stopped using an I had no concern in a particular patient to look at platelets. They had a routine joint. I wasn't interested in their white blood cell count. We started doing H&Hs. Why? Well, it's cheaper. And it gave me the information that I need. Does this patient have postoperative anemia that's significant? And matched with their symptoms if they were hypotensive or had other issues. Um, But when people are doing routine CBCs normally, and hospitalists see the white blood cell count elevated after routine orthopedic surgery, there are still many times where the knee-jerk reaction is pan-culture. Blood cultures times two, chest x-ray, UACNS, a lot of money, and a lot of you know, trauma to the patient. This patient's been whipped around the hospital, they get a chest x-ray, they have to pee in a cup, they have blood cultures, you know, done in the right arm, then done in the left arm, and 99% of the time, if not 100%, they're gonna be all normal. So just understand that there is a shift, there's a leukocytosis, there's a stress response after all of these large orthopedic surgeries. And just because you see this elevation in the white blood cell count, um, there's not a reason to pan-culture these patients. I think the other factor that used to be a huge issue with this was also the post-operative fever, which we also know is very common in post-operative patients. Uh, nowadays, with many people going to the scheduled non-narcotic pain regimens, specifically you know, the use of scheduled acetaminophen, there have actually been some studies that have shown that the post-operative fever has been diminished, if not eradicated. So you know, I'm hoping that even if, you are having a hospital that does CBCs routinely for your post-op orthopedic surgery patients and they're on acetaminophen to avoid the use of excessive narcotics, you may not see the fever and maybe there's not as much of a knee jerk in an afebrile asymptomatic patient with just a white blood cell count, but don't routinely pan culture. And if you see the elevated white blood cell count, even if they have a low grade temp, you know, again, call, talk to your surgical team and say, hey, I saw this and this. Um, do you believe that there's a reason that we should pan culture this patient? Because for routine cases, the odds are the answer is going to be no. Um, the last thing I'll sort of, you know, leave you with, and again, it's one of those things which I see commonly on post-operative patients. And again, 99% of you listening, you're going to kind of shake your head and go, yep, no duh. But you know, for the 1% of you that, you know, aren't thinking this is that if you have somebody that is short of breath or swollen, you think they have a PE, you think they have a DVT, and they're post-surgical, do not order a D-dimer. You know, D-dimer is great in the patient walking into your urgent care who you suspect may have a PE, DVT, prior to getting the CT or the ultrasound. Um, If you suspect a patient has a PE in a post-surgical patient because they're hypoxic and tachycardic, you know, the best thing typically is to initiate treatment and then work it up. You know, obviously, talk to your surgeon and find out, you know, whether or not it's safe to anticoagulate that person. But for me, if I have that suspicion, I'm initiating treatment and then ordering the CT. But when you order the D dimer in a post operative patient, it's always going to be positive. So again, it's another lab draw, it's another stick, it's another waste of money because the information does not help you make the diagnosis. So all of these things, you know, I hope a lot of these things, you know, ring true. if there is something that you haven't thought of before, or maybe something that you kind of have thought of, but you know the knee jerk reaction is to do something else. If anything, I just hope this makes you think twice um, before either instituting a treatment um, or not. You know, just kind of making sure that you're doing the appropriate thing for the patient under the appropriate circumstance. Um, but again, if there are questions, um, and please definitely, if there are other topics that you would really like to hear that you find to be helpful again orthopedic topics for the non-orthopedic specialist um, that may help you in the office that may help you in the er the urgent care in the icu on the floors Um, please you know let me know email me dm me i'd like to do some other episodes on those topics um, before you know we kind of get back into the the orthopedic swing of things for all the orthopedic surgeons uh, residents and fellows Uh, and again if any of these past few episodes and topics have been helpful to you and you have other colleagues um, that you really believe may benefit from some of this information, please forward the information on to them. If you can, leave a review that's really helpful for other people finding this information and finding the podcast. And once again, you've been listening to Adam Rosen on the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast, this season three, which has been geared for the non-orthopedic provider. Until next time, stay safe. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed so you'll be notified of future episodes. And please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. Until next time, stay safe.